the History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week, July 17th, 1964. I'm Kalen Jones. It's an early morning in the middle of the arid Australian desert. A group of engineers, racers, and officials led by British land speed racer Donald Campbell has ventured to the site with one goal in mind, to break a world record. And after spending days and nights meticulously tinkering with and monitoring his vehicle, the crew rolls out a sleek, dark blue car along the hard surface, the Bluebird CN7. A gorgeous, exemplary piece of Tiffany moving jewelry. Campbell climbs into the cockpit. His wife, Tanya, hands him a small good luck teddy bear, Mr. Wapit, before the plexiglass canopy closes. The crew makes its final checks, and Campbell gets a final thumbs up. For miles around, there's nothing in sight but the flat white desert. A six inch wide, straight blue line already sprayed onto the track guides Campbell's path forward. He and Bluebird take off. Campbell's run peaks at 440 miles per hour. But to set an official world record, he must make a second run within the hour. The two times will be average. His crew quickly tends to the Bluebird, swapping her tires, checking the engine, and refueling. Soon, Campbell takes off in the opposite direction, driving towards the rain damp inside of the track, which poses a threat to achieving full speed. Campbell pulls it off. At 8.10 a.m., Officials confirm his time of 403.1 miles per hour. He's greeted by handshakes and smiles from his crew, and they relieved embrace from his wife. Little does Campbell know that his two speed runs over the course of this hour in Australia will usher in several gears of fierce and escalating rivalries thousands of miles away. Between competitors, between families, between continents, and between corporations with very deep pockets. Today, Donald Campbell breaks the land speed record, kicking off the most thrilling period of speed racing history. Why, after the record stood for more than a decade, is it suddenly broken 13 times in a two-year span? What possesses these men and women to risk their lives in pursuit of these world records? And what extraordinary lengths do these competitors go to in order to defeat their equally competitive rivals? When he set the record, I mean, that was one of the biggest things in sports at the time. I mean, it was a perfect storm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
The first world land speed record is set on December 18, 1898 by French racer Gaston de Chasselou Lupin, clocking in at just over 39 miles per hour. Less than a month later, on January 17, 1899, the record is broken by Camille Genazzi of Belgium, who tops 41 miles per hour. That very same day, Chasselet Lupin snatches the record back for France. Genazzi takes it back a mere 10 days later. This seems to be a recurring theme in the history of land speed records. They tend to come in bunches over a short period of time, with a small number of competitors actively trying to outdo each other, often on the very same track. Oh, it's the hunt. It's the, it's the, it's never been done. It's that, why did that boy go up the, up that big mountain called Everest? You know, why did the Vikings come across the stinking ocean? You know, it's an adventure. That's Louise Ann Noeth, known in the racing world as Land Speed Louise. She's a race car driver, a pilot, a journalist, an author, and an engineer who worked on the build teams for several record-setting race cars. It's something that needed doing, and it may not be something you need to do or your grandma needs to do. Why go to the moon? Why leave the Earth? Why fly? Another flurry of records begins in 1902, as France and Belgium are joined by two American competitors, most notably automobile inventor Henry Ford, who sets the record in 1904, topping 91 miles per hour. Henry Ford's record falls a mere 11 weeks later. Things slowed down from 1906 until the 1920s, when a young British racer by the name of Malcolm Campbell sets his first land speed record in 1924, traveling 146 miles per hour. From 1924 to 1947, Malcolm Campbell dominates the competition, setting the world land speed record nine times, becoming the first man to crack 300 miles per hour while driving his famous Bluebird vehicle in 1935. He also sets numerous motorcycle speed records and the world water speed record four times. His three chief rivals throughout this time are also British, Henry Seagrave, George Easton, and John Cobb, all of whom continue to race after Campbell's retirement in 1935. And yet, starting in the late 1920s, their world record runs take place exclusively in the United States. Daytona Beach in Florida and the legendary Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. Bonneville is the perfect place to set a land speed record. It's flat, it's massive, and most importantly, the salt is as hard as a rock. It's feet thick, not inches thick. You can lose tire pressure, but it takes a hell of a long time for even a steel rim to cut into that hard salt and cause that vehicle to flip. It was safer and the tire probably wouldn't deflate as much because it didn't heat up as much because even though Wannaville is solid and hard in August and it gets up to 120 degrees, it's always wet. How, how many times have you driven over 100 miles an hour? Um, probably, you know, maybe seven or eight times. Have you done it for like more than five or 10 miles at a time? No, no. Okay, imagine doing that at 100 miles an hour for an hour with your eyes closed and never hit a damn thing. 
That's one of them. Malcolm Campbell has one daughter, Jean, and a son, Donald. Donald goes into the family business of setting speed records. This seems to be a pattern. Entire families dedicating themselves to building and driving these record-setting vehicles. You're just grown into it. I mean, it was it was one of those things. It's what else are you going to do? That's Tim Arfons, son of legendary racer Arthur Arfons. Tim knows a thing or two about following in your legendary father's footsteps into the world of racing cars. You're like a professional football player's son. I mean, he's got to be a football player. <laughs> Really, I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> no, there was never a question. I started driving at 16. Donald Campbell may have inherited his father's dogged pursuit of speed records, but in a final demonstration of their strained relationship, he does not inherit his father's cars or speedboats. In fact, after Malcolm Campbell's death, his will stipulates that his record-setting vehicles are to be sold to the highest bidder, with the proceeds going not to his son Donald, but to his grandchildren. So Donald goes out to the auction and buys his father's car and speedboat himself. But to set a world record, you need more than just a fast car and a good driver. Money, honey. You know, they say, oh, speed costs money. How fast do you want to go? You would have to have the observers. So they have to be brought in. They have expenses. They have hotels. They want to eat. They have this, that, the other transportation back and forth. You got to pay for all that. Then you have to pay the sanctioning fee for the local group. Then you got to pay the sanctioning fee for the national group. And then you have to pay ACTUS, which is the group uh, that takes care of all of the racing organizations in the United States and represents the United States, the FIA. Everybody gets a chunk of change. In, in many cases, that could cost upwards of a quarter million dollars. Now, you tell me how many amateur racers can afford that. Not many amateurs can afford that, but Malcolm Campbell can. The Campbells were extremely wealthy people. And Malcolm was quite the snob. And he wanted you to know that he was and you weren't. <laughs> On every chance he got. Donald was a little more of a, a delightful human being. He was much better um, appreciated. And he saw this, that he could use this influence that his family name had. And he liked it. But he was always kind of in dad's shadow until he could break out and set his own records. And then it was his deal. And he would keep the legacy of the Bluebird. He even named the cars the same as Pops. In the 1930s, the Bonneville Salt Flats are the international hub for world speed records. Every single world land speed record from September 1935 through September 1947 is set right there in Utah. And then... The records stop. So that period from 47 to the early 60s, that's when Bonneville rose and expanded and exploded with a mechanical circus, was what I call it, where people made their dreams come true. They made them manifest in metal and in rubber and tire and guts and glory. And yet, no one breaks the world land speed record during the 16-year period. Meanwhile, Donald Campbell takes advantage of this temporary lull to set his sights on the water. He sells his father's iconic Bluebird car in order to buy an upgraded jet engine. And working with engineer brothers Lewis and Ken Norris, Donald Campbell breaks the world water speed record six times during the 1950s. 
But heading into the 1960s, with his father Malcolm Campbell's generation retired, Donald Campbell returns to the road. It was like that whole thing with Kennedy. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, the space race, the whole nine car. I mean, it was just dazzling the minds of all kinds of Americans. I mean, why do you think there were fins on cars? You know, they went like space cars. You know, all this speedy stuff. Nothing can beat the 60s. It was the best of everything back then. You can't just go out there and experiment with stuff like they used to. And there was a lot of innovation back then, which I think we've lost. And I think that's what made the 60s so wonderful back then. Campbell heads to Bonneville in September of 1960, ready to drive the Bluebird Proteus CN7, named after his father Malcolm's Bluebird car that had set the record 25 years prior. At this time, the land speed world record is still 394 miles per hour, set by John Cobb in 1947. Donald Campbell's goal is to be the first man to surpass 400 miles per hour. But to set an officially recognized land speed record, there's a lot more to it than simply eclipsing a certain speed for a moment. Land speed racing, it is essentially uh, taking a speed machine between two points over a certified course with timing lights, some kind of certified timing uh, that you can verify. And there are several levels. You have the amateur, you have national records, and world records. World records require you go over a measured mile and do that in two directions within 60 minutes. To break the record, Donald Campbell must have his fastest mile timed in one direction, and then within one hour, have that same mile timed on the way back. Those two miles are then averaged. If the average is above 394, Donald Campbell is the new world record holder. The builders of the CN7 believe the car is equipped to surpass 500 miles per hour, so 394 seems quite achievable. Yet, despite impressive acceleration to 400 miles per hour in just 24 seconds, using only 80% of the car's power, Campbell is unsuccessful. During a run on September 16, 1960, Campbell is involved in a high-speed crash in the Bluebird CN7. According to Samuel Hawley, author of Speed Duel, the inside story of the land speed record in the 60s, as Campbell reaches the two-mile mark, he's nearing 300 miles per hour when a strong crosswind pushes Bluebird out of control. The car skids along the desert surface, then bounces four times, going airborne for 825 feet before sliding along the surface for a quarter mile. Campbell is found unconscious. He suffers multiple injuries, including a lower skull fracture and a burst eardrum. After years of recuperation, in March 1963, Campbell takes a completely rebuilt version of the Bluebird CN7 out to the desert again. But in a somewhat surprising decision, he doesn't head out to Bonneville Flats. Instead, he travels to the other side of the globe, the dry salt beds near Lake Eyre in southern Australia. Think about how many people you know have the money to put not only their car, but all of their stuff and their people, bring it over to another continent on the other side of the planet, take it out and go racing, you know? And what happens if you break something? <laughs> you know, it's not like they got, you know, O'Reilly's auto parts down, down the corner. Lake Eyre was a fresh start. 
it's kind of like, you know, you get your house is broken into or you had a divorce. You just want a different house, different fresh start. I think that was more the case of him not coming back to, to Bonneville. That could be one, but that's my opinion. Just like Bonneville, the land surrounding Lake Eyre is flat, expansive, and bone dry. Absolutely perfect conditions for a world record attempt. Donald Campbell arrives in Australia in March 1963, and he catches a bad break. Lake Eyre sees its first rainfall in over a decade. The rain begins lightly, but by May, the entire area is flooded, forcing Campbell and his team to abandon the attempt and his sponsor, BP, to abandon Campbell. One year later, on July 17, 1964, with Australian Petroleum Company Ampol on board as his new sponsor, Campbell is finally ready again. The track is still a bit wet from the recent rainfall, but Campbell will not be denied. He accelerates his four-ton, 30-foot-long Bluebird to a speed of 440 miles per hour and route to a new world record of 403.1 miles per hour. Donald Campbell is celebrated by over 200,000 fans in Adelaide, Australia. He's the new world record holder. But even though Campbell has ascended to the top of the racing world, he can't help but feel disappointed. 403 miles per hour is not actually the fastest time ever recorded. An American named Craig Breedlove has already eclipsed 407 miles per hour back in Bonneville. In fact, Campbell's challengers are already circling and plotting. The competition is heating up, and the racing world is about to change forever. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1947, race car driver John Cobb becomes the first man to eclipse 400 miles per hour in a vehicle. However, there are specific rules to setting land speed records. Those rules state that drivers must average their fastest mile times from two separate runs, both conducted within an hour. Cobb's average record 394 miles per hour stands for nearly 20 years. But then, in August of 1963, American race car driver Craig Breedlove records an average mile time of 407 miles per hour in his car 
the spirit of America. However, unlike Donald Campbell and John Cobb, Craig Breedlove drives a jet-powered car. Campbell and Cobb drive wheel-driven cars. Louise Ann Noeth explains. Most people on the planet, when they got up and got in their car and turned it on, whether it was an electric car or a internal combustion engine car, and they put it in gear and moved, the wheels move the car. That is a wheel-driven car. Meanwhile, a jet-powered car, like the one Breedlove drives. The best way to explain it is think of a, a balloon. Everybody's blown up a balloon and then let go of it, and it goes... <laughs> That's thrust power, folks. <laughs> when you put it in a race car, it's just a bit more engineered. So it stays in a straight line, and it stays on the ground. But that's the difference in the pilot. From the first land speed record in the 1800s, right up until 1964, the International Automobile Federation recognizes only wheel-driven cars for official world land speed records. Breedlove drives a jet-powered car and is therefore ineligible for the world record. When Breedlove sets the record at 407 miles per hour, it's considered an unofficial record because at that time, the International Automobile Federation recognizes only wheel-driven cars for official world land speed records. So when Donald Campbell makes his famed 403-mile-per-hour run in Lake Air the following year, he's declared the official world record holder. Fortunately for Breedlove, the FIA changes its rules in December 1964, allowing jet-powered cars to compete for land speed records, making Breedlove's 1963 run an official record in the history books. Regardless, whole new classes of vehicles, whether wheel-driven or thrust-powered, whether on four wheels or three, are now eligible to be considered for the top records. In other words, the game has changed. It's open season for some major racing innovations. And two American drivers in particular, Craig Breedlove and Arthur Arfons, are hungry to bring the records back home. World Records said it had a really bad, bad taste in the American mouths. Because, of course, we were the stinking Americans, you know, and they, they were not part of the European group. One of the plans, you know, if I'd have stayed with Craig, our plan was to get the land speed record back, then go get the water speed record that Ken Warby had, and then go after the air speed record of Greenemeyer. That was, that was the plan. We wanted air, land, and speed for the United States of America. And he wanted to own all three of them. He was a greedy Greedy, greedy guy. <laughs> Again, that's Louise Ann Noeth. She joins up with Craig Breelove's team after the 1960s, helping to build and even racing his record-setting cars. Between 1964 and 1965, the records fall continuously. It took 16 years for the land speed record to go from just 394 miles per hour to 403. Well, it only takes 16 months to go from 403 miles per hour to over 600 miles per hour. Craig Breedlove and Arthur Arfons essentially spend these two years going back and forth, stealing the crown from one another, oftentimes within the same week. On October 5th, 1964, Arfons drives his turbo jet car, Green Monster, 434 miles per hour at Bonneville. The next week, Breedlove drives Spirit of America 468 miles per hour on October 13th. 
Two days later, Breedlove becomes the first man to set the record over 500 miles per hour, officially this time, in one of the most miraculous runs in speed racing history. On his first run, Breedlove goes 513 miles per hour. He turns the car around for his second run, but as he speeds through the measured mile, Spirit of America's suspension breaks. Breedlove can't slow the car down. The parachutes fail and the brakes cease to function. Breedlove speeds off the Bonneville course, runs through a telephone pole, and is launched into a ditch. The crew rushes over, fearing the worst. Instead, they find a fully intact Breedlove who, despite this near-death experience, is cracking jokes. Go for my next trick! I'll set myself on fire. Everything's okay. What else is I going to do? Did we break the record, goddard? He is the one man in all of racing, all of racing, that has crashed more times over 500 miles an hour and has never, ever bled or broke a bone. So if you meet him, my friends, do not reach for his hand, pull his shirt up and rub his belly because he is the lucky Buddha of speed. Less than two weeks after Breedlove's crash, Arfons resets the mark at 536 miles per hour on October 27, 1964. Breedlove receives the news while at a press conference in Detroit being held for his now former record. To add insult to injury, Arfon sets the last land record of this year. But Bonneville remains the stage for Breedlove and Arfon's duel, heading into 1965. When you were on the Bonneville Salt Flats, you couldn't just show up and, and hang. You had to schedule time through the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce that had a division that kept the schedule. You had to get on the calendar. And if Craig Breedlove was there from July 1st to July 14th, Arthur was already there about the 10th or the 11th because if Craig broke or something happened that he couldn't race, part of the contract was you will actively race or vacate the premises if someone is waiting. And Arthur was always waiting. Holding onto and securing a reservation at Bonneville becomes arguably as important as preparing for the race itself. In fact, to avoid Arfon spoiling his run, in 1965, Craig Breedlove has his wife, Lee Breedlove, take a few runs in his new car, Sonic 1, just to keep Arfons and his team off the racetrack. They put Lee in the car to fill up the time, remember? Actively racing. That's where those records and those demonstrations happened. I also know from Walter Sheehan, who was Craig Breedlove's engineer, he was told, and I have the records, so I, I can back this up. He was told by the sponsor, turn that engine down. Under no circumstance do we want that woman going any faster than this. That's why Lee Breedlove only went as fast as she went. The Sponsors. It's true during every golden era of racing, money talks. This period in the 1960s is marked by the drivers, but defined by the rivalry between competing tire companies. It was because of the money. This was sponsor motivated. You had a arch rival 
panel like the sharks and the jets at New York City streets of West Side Story between Goodyear and Firestone. And my tire is better than your tire. It's schoolyard stuff on a corporate level. It was Dan on the East, Free Love in the West. Goodyear and Firestone were going at it. Again, that's the voice of Tim Arfons, son of Arthur Arfons. I don't know how much Breedlove was getting, but I know my dad would get 25000 each time he set the record. And I mean, if you didn't have tires, you weren't going. That was the limiting factor. I mean, my dad built the car for like $10,000, and it was riding on over $50,000 worth of tires. This was the top of the tire war. Who has the fastest car in the world? Who's got the fastest tires in the world? I mean, if it had only been one of them, I don't think it, it would have been, somebody would have got the record, it would have been over, and no one ever thought about it. It would have been, no one would have even known. Firestone learned a lot of tire technology through that that they attributed to building those tires. And so what, what did they learn? I guess, like, how did the technology with the tires kind of evolve during that time from your perspective? Not far enough, because he lost a couple of tires on record runs. I mean, they, it was really tough to build a tire to go, you know, five, 600 miles an hour. Firestone built the tires when my dad built his car. You know, the record wasn't even 400 mile an hour yet. So they had to give him tires that, you know, they were expecting him to go 400. And a year and a half later, he was going 600. On November 2nd, 1965, Breedlove drives Sonic 1 a record 555 miles per hour at Bonneville. Queuing up Arfons, who take the track five days later on November 7th, 1965. In his book, Speed Duel, Samuel Hawley explains that Arfon's nose, to a great degree of certainty, at his right rear tire is going to blow out during his run that day, clearly at great risk to himself. After all, that very same brand of tire has blown out on his previous two record runs. This doesn't deter Arfon's in the slightest. During his first practice run, he clocks 575 miles per hour. And with the record in sight, he and his crew decide to reset Green Monster within the hour and try to break the record. Just as Arfons predicted, his right rear tire blows. Smoke fills the car, but Arfons safely stops it. He gets out to examine the damage and kicks the blown out tire. Arfons has set a new world record at 576 miles per hour. Breedlove finds out about his five day old record being broken as he arrives in New York to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. While Breedlove appears on national television, Arfons does his best to avoid the media. Well, Breedlove was Hollywood and dad was Middle West. He just was a normal person. If he could have just went out there and set the speed record and no one knew who he was, he'd have been just as happy doing that. He wasn't for any of that. He just wanted to go out there and go fast. In the Breedlove-Arfons rivalry, Breedlove gets the final word. He returns from New York shortly after Arfon's record-setting run. And on November 15, 1965, Breedlove drives Sonic 1 a record 600.6 miles per hour, completing the trifecta of becoming the first man to record attempts that break the 400, 500, and now 600-mile-per-hour threshold. Breedlove's run will officially conclude this golden two-year stretch for speed racing. Somehow, despite the intense rivalry, Arfon's and Breedlove maintain an amicable relationship, even as they put their lives on the line pursuing the same record. They had gone to dinner or something and they were in rental cars and they're racing back. Breedlove got pulled over 
And the cop asked him, who do you think you are, Art Arfons? And he goes, no, he's in the car behind me. <laughs> I mean, that was a cool story. Meanwhile, as Breedlove and Arfons are trading off the land speed record for these two years, Donald Campbell heads back onto the water in December 1964, topping 276 miles per hour on Australia's Dumble Young Lake. This makes Campbell the first and only person in history to hold the land speed record and water speed record simultaneously. Tragically, Campbell dies attempting another water speed record in 1967 when his bluebird boat hits a wake and soars straight up into the air before nose diving onto the surface of the water. He's believed to have died instantly. His body is only found 34 years later in 2001. Donald Campbell's only child, Gina, was 17 when her father died. Years later, she's asked if she has any regrets about her father's extreme pursuits. He knew the risk he was taking, Gina Campbell said. He was a world record breaker. He liked to set the boundaries and break the boundaries himself. Yes, we can look back and say, yes, he died a young man. But you know, he died a hero. He died doing what he wanted to do. They put magic into motorsports and racing and the fastest things on earth. Bang, 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 bang. Every few weeks, there was another record. It was splashed on headlines in all over the world, in languages, everywhere. And in this business of speed, nobody can make you do this. You got it. Want it. And Don wanted it. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. Special thanks to our guests, Tim Arfons, son of Arthur Arfons, and Luis Anno, author of Bonneville Salt Flats. This episode was produced by David Ingbert. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by The Podglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.